No, that wasn't it sounds perfectly. Done. That's fine. <laughs> the wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth, and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. Hello and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly read-along Wheel of Time podcast. I, of course, am Greg, who is very excited to be joining you as we cross the uh, 400 mark in my copy of The Dragon Reborn. And joining me, as always, as he eagerly counts down the hours, nay minutes, nay seconds until the Wheel of Time finale is Tyler. Tyler, how's it going? Uh, it is going very well. Not only am I counting down towards the end of the Wheel of Times season two on television, I am also counting down until this book gets really, really exciting. I think that countdown might be at one week at this point. So good Ooh. things are coming down the path. Uh, but if we're talking about Wheel of Time and we're talking about television, I believe you have an edition about non-Wheel of Time television to discuss today. Yeah, I mean, we didn't have any uh, non-visual uh, discussions or anything like that. So I just wanted to throw it out there that, um, you know, when uh, we talked about um, the Wheel of Time television show, we talked about ways in which it's kind of weird because it seems to borrow from other other genre shows, but, um, you know, predates those genre shows as a, a work. But um I will say I've been watching and enjoying the Ahsoka television show. And again, we never give a single clue about when we're recording these episodes. You just can't possibly tell when we're recording. They're timeless. But maybe we're recording 15 minutes early tonight to see the Ahsoka finale uh, after after our recording. And while I've been really enjoying it, I will note, I think it has ripped off a few things from the Wheel of Time. And I, it struck me that you might feel the same way. Have you noticed some similarities? You know, I have noticed the occasional stray similarity here and there, but you brought this up initially and my reaction was like, huh, I hadn't thought of it, but now you mention it. Yes, that makes sense. So I think that I am very curious to hear what your kind of full list or description of the similarities are, because I have a feeling I've probably missed some of these, mostly just because I've been so obsessed with the Wheel of Time TV show that Ahsoka is way lower down in my priority list right now. <laughs> Well, I will say the one that really got to me, and this this probably comes from listening to a disgusting number of recap podcasts on every episode. So, like, I'm listening to, like, eight episodes, and there's a character on the show named Balin uh, Skull, uh, and uh, his apprentice is Shin Hati. And, and so a lot has been made of these two characters and who they are and what they're doing. And I think that's kind of because they're new to Ahsoka. And there's a mythological connection where their names, uh, Skull and Shin, are the wolves who bring around Ragnarok. And wolves come from the Wheel of Time. 
Uh, no, uh, but the real connection there is uh, Balin has talked a lot about like we need to break the cycle of yeah. kind of uh, violence and war and so on. And when he said that, all of my uh, recap podcasts are like, wow, he's really he's channeling Daenerys Targaryen, who said she wanted to break the cycle. Like, it's all Daenerys. It's, and I was like, no, 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 no. That is not Daenerys. That is the Wheel of Time in our our mythology. And finally, on one recap show, somebody wrote in with just the text of the opening of the Wheel of Time. And they were like, oh, wow, maybe we should read these books. That sounds pretty <laughs> cool. And so on. Um, and, and I think, you know, that was the big one for me. Did you make that connection? Uh, that one I actually had not caught. I had seen a whole bunch of jokes online about Balin being like, I rem I love the idea of it, but not the practice. My favorite version of that was thinking about academia. I, I love the theory of it, but not the actual living of it. But I had not made the connection between those characters and the Wheel of Time. Um, the connection that immediately jumped to mind to me was the other one that we have discussed off air, which is the fact that now apparently there are basically space tinkers in Star Wars, right? There are pacifists who ride around in their wagons and seem to be nice enough that Ezra now wants to protect them in their pacifism, which feels like a parent thing just sped forward 12 years. That was the connection that immediately <laughs> jumped to mind for me. Well, and, and I already mentioned uh, that I stuck my foot in it because somebody called this Star Wars trailer park and I assumed they were making fun of the naughty and was like, hey, don't be rude. And they're like, excuse me, I grew up in a trailer park. I, I'm not being rude, which uh, I felt really bad about that. Uh, there I was calling them out. But um, absolutely those characters. Right. And they yeah. you know, I think what's probably happening there is they're drawing off of the when we met them, we talked about the the Pikes and uh, the Romani, these kind of uh, nomadic peoples that exists still in Europe, but, you know, even flourished not all that long ago. And so I think to me, Robert Jordan is responding to those cultures that yeah. were around as he's writing these. And so Star Wars now borrowing them, but it's a great addition because it's not actually, you know, a part of uh, anything we've seen before, right? It's a new yeah. version of that. And these kind of crab hobbit people, um, you know, I I saw one person say we need to refer to the main one as Bilbo Crabbins, uh, like but uh, <laughs> he's they're kind of fun and um you know they they got a little bit in the action in the most recent episode we've seen. Again, mm -hmm. when are we recording this? Maybe all this is wrong in an hour. Um, well, and the last thing is just that we have a, a more present version of female witches. These are not new to Star Wars, but I would say they're being yeah. more prominently placed. And in particular, they are uh, they reference that they follow the strings of fate. And there's very mm -hmm. kind of similar language to predestination being kind of woven by, you know, something and. And then there's a lot more that that are kind of simple. But I will just say it would not surprise me at all to learn that some of the creatives behind the show are big Wheel of Time fans. Um, and we know uh, Dave Filoni, the, the writer, is a huge wolf guy. So it would only make sense that he is also a, a Wheel of Time fan. So. Um, hey, without warning, we just spoiled a whole bunch of a Star Wars TV show, so we should <laughs> probably stop and move along to what people actually tuned in for. Don't we that. We didn't spoil the <laughs> Star Wars television show. Uh, uh, no, fair I enough. Think 
I think there are a lot of really interesting parallels there. And the interesting question, of course, is like how much of that was intentional versus how much of it is like modern storytelling just evolving since Jordan and absorbing a lot of these themes. I don't know the answer to that. So instead, I will try to dig into something I do know a little bit about. Chapter 36 daughter of the night. This chapter begins with Perrin, who is uh, looking for an empty cabin in the ship that they have just arrived on. Um, and he is thinking of kind of the coincidence of Fayil arriving when she did and having the name that means Falcon and all of these things. Um, he also encounters um, Loyal briefly and decides he does not want to share a cabin with him because he just want to wants to talk. And then he starts thinking about the wolves and how they have been causing problems for him. He thinks about how Elias had made peace with that part of himself. And then um, he thinks a little bit about his acts and how he's feeling too comfortable doing violence, especially after the battle with the White Cloaks. And then eventually he falls asleep. Suddenly he is in a room filled with dense fog and does not have his axe on him. Hopper is there, emerges from the fog and starts taking him through it. The fog gets denser and denser and eventually he is surrounded entirely by blackness. And then eventually he emerges into a room where he can see Baalzaman speaking to a number of individuals. He tells those people that they are sleeping, that they are within um, what he refers to as um, the world of dreams. And uh, he uh, basically starts to... Um, Sorry, I lost my place in my notes. Um, he notes that there was one individual who failed to stop someone from leaving Tarvalon, and when that individual uh, doesn't have a good enough excuse, he kills them and then says that that person is going to wake up not at all. They will basically be dead upon the morning. Um, he also notes that no one will know what happens to that person, and that is way more horrifying to me. Uh, then Lanfear arrives. They start having a discussion about whether or not he is using what she calls her domain. Um, Baelzaman accuses her of disloyalty, and they kind of briefly discuss what kind of the best plans for what to do with Rand are. Um, Hopper then leaves Perrin out of the room, uh, tells Perrin that he needs to be cautious like a cub hunting a porcupine, which is just a wonderful wolf sending. Um, and then he notes that all wolves are in Teleron Riode, even the ones who have died or the ones who are yet to be born. Um, he then, uh, Perrin then sees a few visions. He thinks about uh, other dreams that he has um, of Rand surrounded by Murdrail and a number of people. He sees Rand channeling and kills all of the individuals who are surrounding him. And then Perrin tries to warn Rand of more Murdrail, but in Instead, Rand attacks him. Um, Perrin then wakes up and has a scar where he was hit by uh, the fire from Rand in the dream, um, and he goes to see Moraine. Um, she is going over notes, and he notes that they are notes that he notes that they are uh, letters and writings <laughs> about uh, the, their time in the two rivers. Um, Moraine um, says that many Aes Sedai, uh, if they learned of his dreaming and of his uh, interaction with the wolves, would want to try to gentle him, even though it wouldn't do anything to him. And then Perrin starts asking questions about um, Zareen. Um, she basically says, no. Don't ask any questions about that. And then he goes outside and immediately, who is there? Zareen. Um, she uh, 
is kind of briefly discussing. Uh, oh, sorry, I'm jumping backwards now. Moraine tells him what her name means first and says that Zareen is the name of an absolutely beautiful woman, one who will tie men in knots. And so Perrin realizes why it was kind of odd that he said that name fit her. It actually doesn't perfectly. Then he goes out onto the boat. And there is Zareen. We then cut into Rand's head. Um, he is um, realizing that he almost killed the actual Perrin in his dream. He is then approached by a woman and a number of men who ask to share his campsite. They get too close. He kills them all with some sort of uh, a flaming sword and then realizes afterwards that there are 11 bodies, not the 10 he originally expected. Um, that's a long chapter. Greg, say literally anything about it. I need a drink. Not like a drink, drink, uh, but a little, a little bit of drink, drink. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I just took a long snooze during that because that, that was a, a lot of plot. So, um, you know, and I don't know that it exactly fits our usual mold of like if the summary is super long because there's a lot of plot, we don't have a lot to talk about because a lot of this felt symbolic and important yeah. to kind of recognize Um you know, uh, the the real world impacts of these. And, you know, I just love it because it's in dreamland as a part of this. But uh, my silly first reaction is uh, the wolves all being there uh, made me think of the Rainbow Bridge, which uh, is something okay. I don't know if everybody's uh, elderly mother uh, sends them this. But like yeah. since I was like 20, every time a pet dies in my mom's uh, house, she sends me like, I miss them, but I know I'll see them over the rainbow bridge because the rainbow bridge is where all our dead pets are waiting for us in heaven. And when we die, we cross the rainbow bridge and are reunited with your your gecko from science class and your dog from childhood and the rabbit. You kind of liked that one day and so on. <laughs> I, I went straight to we all float down here. So we had very different experiences uh, <laughs> with this. Um, uh, all right. So general serious reaction. I thought this was a very good chapter and probably my yeah. favorite of the three tonight, despite it being in the dreams. Um, and I think I spent most of my time thinking about how this space is becoming more and more real and yeah. that's something that's been hinted since i think literally the first chapter right like or thereabouts like moraine yeah. is is telling us early on that dreams matter and now we're getting just this made quite quite real that mm -hmm. this is happening and all of these people are using this space to then say all of that but make land fears seemingly the the queen of this realm uh yeah. is pretty intriguing yeah, that was my big takeaway from the first half of this chapter, right? I think there's some interesting parent stuff in terms of him grappling with the wolf and trying to get away from it and then having it show up in his dreams. There's the kind of reinforcement of the idea that like you can die in the dream, which I feel like is very important for you because it makes Teleron Riode, which is how I have to pronounce that now because of the television show. <laughs> it makes it a little bit more kind of serious and, you know, solid, but in spite of all of those kind of little things, what I got from the first half of this chapter was like one sentence. Lanfear considers herself to be kind of the ruler or the master of Teleron Riode. And I think that should make all of our characters afraid because she seems like the villain most willing to just get involved in characters' plots. And a lot of characters' plots are kind of unintentionally ending up in dreams these days. I just love it when a beautiful woman gets up involved in my plots. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, yes, I, 
I think that's true. And, and, you know, part of what is intriguing to me, and I, I want to assert to listeners that I know nothing, is the fact that the television show already has that word in the second season, yep. uh, which should presumably be something close to the Great Hunt, not the Dragon Reborn. And um, I know from internet stuff that Lanfear is, well, Lanfear should be in the, in the show yep. by now, but the fact that she's around and uh becoming a major part of the show is is intriguing. Uh yeah. I you know I've called it the the order of operations before but I I I really do think that this chapter is made to make you recalculate how you're thinking about right. who's on top. And you know what comes to mind is actually the Sith, right? Always two mm-hmm. there are no more no less and the point of uh the way the Sith code goes is is a master to hold the power and an apprentice to try to take it. And that feels like the relationship we're seeing right now is that either is a threat to us. They are pure evil, but in the, the tension between them, they both grow their power and their influence. And um, so the fact that we, we have a brutal death, we have these lieutenants, we get that somebody is, is chasing uh, someone out of Tarvelon. And then we get a big clue next chapter who, who they're referencing. Um, But I think all of that to me suggests that, it's not as tidy on that side of the conflict either. Yeah. Well, and I think for me, I I, I kind of felt like I had some hints at this point that there was kind of tension and cross motives on the dark side, right? If nothing else, we've had like the White Cloaks as really clear villains for three books now, but they also have nothing to do with the Dark Friends and that side of things. The thing that really shocked me in kind of that dynamic of the villains you're describing is how much the lanfear Baelzaman conflict felt like a argument between equals rather than Baelzaman clearly being superior to Lanfear. I think we hadn't really seen those two characters interact at this point, and I had maybe assumed that there was a, a hierarchy between them, at least the first time I read it. And this is maybe the first time we're seeing like, no, they are actually much kind of closer to being level. It, it seems almost like Baelzaman is more the first among equals rather than actually a, a rung above in the hierarchy. Well, and they have a moment where it's almost it's actually a little like uh, Voldemort and the Death Eaters when there's like um, questions about was it better to be in Azkaban because uh, then you were truer to the cause or were you supposed to stay hidden? There's there's kind of a Bellatrix Malfoy uh, tension there. Yeah. And it felt a little like that. Lanfear has been locked away in prison working for the cause and kind of feels like Baalzaman sat out the fight for so long and yeah. didn't uh respect him uh in that way um it also reminds me in doctor who there's a a couple uh in uh some matt smith uh seasons where rory and uh amy pond where rory for very doctor who reasons has to like live for a thousand years waiting for her to to be uh born essentially uh and um and uh i i always liked uh kamel nanjiani the the uh comedian was like you just win the argument from then on right like oh yeah babe but remember the thousand years i waited for you like we're not going to your friend's uh wedding and so i feel like lanfear and i swear there's a point to me mentioning all this uh just just random spoilers i'm just going as far afield as i can and taken out whoever is looking um but i do think there's a way in which lanfear is saying my imprisonment my growth and power means 
I get to win the argument from now on and you don't get, I'm not subservient to you, even if we're working on the same side. A hundred percent. And I think that there was even a moment in there where Baalzaman questions whether she is working on behalf of their Lord or whether instead she is working on behalf of herself. And that's maybe an open question we need to be looking at for Lanfear. I think so far we have just been assuming like the Forsaken are the monolithic evil on behalf of the Dark One. And at least now one of the Forsaken seems like they might be kind of a rogue agent in at least, you know, some situations. And that I find interesting. But enough about the dark evil side of the Wheel of Time. I want to talk about the puppy because Hopper is back. (laughs) And we get my favorite wolf sending so far. You need to treat the world of dreams like you are a cub hunting porcupine. And then we also get the justification (laughs) for why Hopper is still here. The previously addressed, all wolves are here, even those who are yet to come or, you know, have already died. Um, This felt to me like a weirdly kind of like light breezy section in the middle of a couple of big exposition dumps. What was your thought on kind of the wolf presence in this chapter, which I found to be personally the most exciting section of the chapter? Um, I'm very interested in how they fit in mythologically. And and again, we've had a lot of these questions on Ahsoka and Rebels uh, before Ahsoka that I don't think of wolves as being mythological, right? The way I think of other creatures. And and so it's very interesting to me. I think that's partially my heritage, but, you know, I understand that like Norse mythology, they are very, you know, spiritual yeah. entities and have that kind of supernatural. Um, but I've never felt that. So it feels weird to put them here. Now, that being said, I loved it. And um, where my mind went was, uh, you know, Dante, when he wrote Inferno, uh, uh, Purgatorio and Paradiso, uh, he designed uh, hell so that he needed a guide. And so as the world's greatest poet at that moment, that's what you have to pretend when you're an epic poet. Um, he was led by uh, Virgil, the last great epic poet into that. And so when we have Hopper here, I'm like, Hopper's Virgil. Hopper's like the great poet of the world taking us in and acting as guide. And even though this isn't quite the underworld, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Joseph Campbell would say that the actual like death underworld plus uh our psychological underworld is also partially a dream state mm-hmm. that's all Jungian blah 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 yeah. so I do think there's something to that that we are traveling into an underworld as all our characters um spend more time here and we are going into their subconscious and so to have a, a guide like Hopper is nice and it's just nice to see the puppy again yeah uh Hopper is wonderful and i know you haven't watched the tv show greg but hopper is by far the best casting of season two of the wheel of time i am very (laughs) impressed uh the last thing that we get in the dream is this kind of brief uh interaction slash conflict with rand i don't really have a ton of notes here other than to say i think this and the section at the end of the chapter do a really good job of letting us know that rand is not in a good way right now even though we haven't checked in with him in a little while and i think he's just in a darker place than i expected and i have nothing else really to add to that was there anything else that stood out to you in in either this or the later rand section really um, only just to metagame a little and think, okay, this is why we're not being put in his head often is we need him to be a little more blank. And, you know, especially in the later section, he's 
fighting his madness or wondering if how he will avoid madness, but also maybe am I already mad? And I think all of that put together, it's like, oh, so it would be really tricky to be in his head and to keep that a mystery, right? So yeah. I think it's going to be important as all our characters conver- converge on tier. Um, yes, tier. Good work. I, I, I second guess myself every time now. Uh, as we all converge on tier to be wondering, is Rand going to be on our side still or has he fallen into madness? Um a realm of dreams and madness, aka Ahsoka's last episode. See, it they just keep coming. So it also just sounds like the title in that other fantasy series that I refuse to read because it sounds too horny for me. But a something of something and something. That's how that series works, right? A court of whatever <laughs> and whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We are then left with a conversation between Perrin and Moraine, which. I found a little interesting because most of the time, all I want in the Wheel of Time is two characters to talk openly to one another. And this is like the third time that Perrin has done it in this book. And I'm kind of like, okay, can anyone else have the conversation now? I I feel like I've seen (laughs) this a little bit. The only new kind of real interesting piece of information here for me was the meaning of Zareen slash Fahil's name. But I didn't get a ton from Moraine here. She was a lot more closed off than in the previous conversations we've seen between her and Perrin. Well, and it does draw back to that earlier time when she's like, tell me about your dreams because they're meaningful. And here he's actually following the instructions. And then she's like, cool. Uh, I mean, the only other thing I wrote in my notes is it becomes clear from that conversation that Perrin is in danger, that he kind of is like, well, I'm not Rand, so nobody would really care about me. And she's like, oh, no, people would care about this. This is important. And you uh, should not run into some reds. Red Aja, I should say, not communist. Red Aja. I mean, try to avoid both of those things, but Red Aja is worse, I guess is what we're saying. Um, I did just want to really quickly note while we're kind of on this subject, um, kind of the signs of danger. I think that we have identified Moraine as like, look, you're in trouble. But I think Perrin actually misses one earlier because he doesn't have the full context. Baelzaman and it p- punishes the guy who dies horribly because he didn't catch Matt, right? This is clearly one of the footpads who Matt got away from. And I found that as kind of like a not subtle enough, but like everyone gets it, but you feel good for catching it. That's the kind of like Easter egg that I want in this sort of chapter. Yeah, and I think so much of this book has been built around those, right? It's like, it's they're not even necessarily Easter eggs, although you're using that as, the world is using that, but it's just like, it, it reminds me of um, when you watch uh, uh, Dunkirk and all of a sudden the like pilots from one plot line come flying through. It's like, it makes perfect sense that these events are spinning in all strands. You just don't often get those crossovers the way this is being told. So yeah. those kind of moments of synchronicity are um, important and they feel good in the way an Easter egg feels good. But I, I think it's a little different so yeah you you are correct i was misusing that term in exactly the way everyone misuses that term good yeah good correction i should be better than them i should always (laughs) be better than them chapter 37 fires in kyrian unless you had last thoughts Excellent. Um, just to note, I, I hate the t- the show for making me do this, but it's Kyrian, apparently, not Kyrian, as I was saying before. Uh, Egwene... I look forward to never remembering that. 
Excellent. Uh, Egwene <laughs> is on board the Blue Crane, the ship that she and the other girls have gotten aboard. Um, they pass a number of abandoned villages and places where there clearly has been conflict in the Civil War in Kyrian. Um, and they um, basically have been uh, found the kind of smallest cabin on the ship. It turns out that they basically agreed to take one cabin instead of three. And it turns out that the girls have been passing themselves off as Aes Sedai, even though they are not actually Aes Sedai. They talk about kind of uh, making it seem as if they are Aes Sedai and letting everyone assume, even though they are not directly stating that they are. Um, they also note that all of the girls have been experimenting with the Twisted Ring Terangriel, and they've had mixed results. None of them have been able to give into the world of dreams other than Egwene, but there have been some kind of like odd side effects and partial successes, it seems like. Um, she also describes a number of dreams that she has had recently. Um, she says she continues to dream of Rand being in danger, um, that she's dreamed of Perrin, um, including a vision of a hawk and a falcon fighting one another. Um, she has had dreams of Min spinning or springing a trap and Matt being followed by a man who was not there and also a dream of Matt with an illuminator someone setting off fireworks uh, there's a deluge of other dreams I don't have them all in my notes but there's a lot of little symbols here uh, she then starts to feel helpless and wishes that she could uh, go back to her family and then she kind of has that realization we all have at some point that going back to her family wouldn't actually fix any problems um, the other girls um, at this point start to kind of have a little bit of a discussion about what their plan is going forward and in particular Elaine starts to talk about how they need to do something about Kyrian, how terrible the civil war is and what harm is being done. Um, Egwene seems surprised about this because Kyrian is kind of in a rivalry with Andor but Elaine notes that over the last uh, couple decades since the Aiel War, they've actually become fairly close because of the grain trade between the countries. Um, and then at this point, um, Egwene realizes that her dream about Matt was about a gray man who was after him. Uh, she realizes that she has solved it, and that means that many of the others may also potentially be solvable. At this point, the ship they are on abruptly stops, um, and they realize first they think it must be a mud flat, but in fact there is actually a sunken ship that was probably put there by bandits. Um, the girls decide that rather than wait for the ship to get unmoored, they are going to go on to shore and walk their way to the nearest village and that way they can catch the next ship that comes by whether it is this ship or not they go on the Kyrian side at Nynaeve's suggestion uh, Egwene is a little bit upset about the fact that Nynaeve seems to be taking charge but in the end they go on the shore and very quickly encounter a number of individuals not brigands as they expected but instead figures in brown and gray Aiel I probably didn't need that description to be that long. I only have three things really to say about this chapter, but I covered all of the details. Good on me. Greg, I found this to be the kind of transition chapter of the three. The first chapter, I was like, wolves are fun. The third chapter, I was like, learning about the Aiel is fun. This chapter was just getting the girls where they needed to be. Tell me I'm wrong about that. What did I miss that made this chapter more fun or exciting than what I'm seeing? Um, I'm currently second-guessing correcting you but i feel like you just gave away the start of the next chapter because they're not revealed to be aiel until okay. the next chapter right it's sorry just ben a figure, and so. Lindsay, my bad <laughs> uh 
Yeah. So my first note on this is, hey, we need to move the clock forward. Right. Yeah. Um, And it felt a little bit like those chapters with Rand and Matt moving through the country. It's like we're going to just yada, yada, yada a few days here mm-hmm. to keep everybody moving forward towards uh towards uh tier so uh i cannot defend this deeply it also felt to me like if this chapter had a purpose it was move the clock and um confirm that it really was a gwayne in all the dreams and i feel like this book has gone out of its way to like really really push that a gwayne is is actually special right that's when they say they were experimenting with the the tangriel it's like oh she is actually the one who needs to be doing this mm-hmm. and she is actually appearing in everybody's dreams and as has been said by others in those dreams it's her it's the real her it's not a projection or a mental uh, image of her or something it's it's actual yeah Egwene dream skipping sure <laughs> well and I think that what's interesting about this chapter then is it's kind of about confirming that Egwene is a dreamer it's about kind of reaffirming that those powers are hers and not something that she's just getting from this object and kind of the way it does it is by throwing a bunch of images at us that we as readers have some more insight into but Egwene is unable to use at all and I think it's this interesting kind of trick that Robert Jordan is doing of both establishing Egwene has a power and then making it very clear that she doesn't know how to use it even well enough to get the basics and so it, it kind of like gives the character room to grow while also affirming what makes them special, which seems like it's a bit late to be doing that. But book three of 15, like, I guess it's still time to be establishing details that will pay off later. Yeah. And, you know, if this book overall has a purpose so far, it seems to be to lean these side characters into the paths they started on and really put them all I I don't know if you can say equal footing to Rand because he's still like the real chosen one, quote unquote. Yeah. But to say that these are all really important paths that they're on and advance them down that. And I'm I I just want to say I'm glad Egwene got one because it would be very 90s of Robert Jordan to be like, and each of the boys is special in a really remarkable way. Yeah. Also, there's a girl. Um, so yeah, I, I do appreciate that she got it. And I do like this as her power. It also feels important to me if we're going to keep separating everybody, even mm. if they come back periodically, to have a means of communicating between them seems like it's gonna be important. Oh, Greg, thinking that these characters will communicate with each other. My sweet summer (laughs) child. Uh, I think the in the early section of this chapter, the only thing that stood out to me is it almost felt like a fun little like two or three pages of paper where the girls were describing like, here are the things we told the people on the ship to make them think we were Aes Sedai. We bought some new clothes. Nine even insisted they'd be nice, but not too nice. Like it could easily kind of read as two or three pages of filler, but I actually found it kind of fun to be thinking through like, what are the girls able to do that they wouldn't be if they weren't pretending to be Aes Sedai and what assumptions are people making without them having to say things like that section worked for me, even though I I guess my entire contribution to it is to say it was three pages I didn't dislike. Like, but that's okay. That's what you need sometimes. Yeah, I think the only other different thing I would say about it is this tension between Nynaeve and Egwene, in Mm -hmm. particular, who can lead seems to be a priority of the presentation. And so to say, 
you know, it, it, it still feels natural. It feels mm-hmm. like I, I don't I, it's not quite mother daughter. It kind of it, it, I'm going to read it in my own masculinity. But like, you know, I when I was a teenager, I had cousins who are like four years behind me. And there comes a point where they kind of challenge like, well, you're not that cool. Right. Like, yeah. I, like I can be better than this. And it's like it's a little bit of a, a like, well, now that I know the whole world, like you don't get to tell me what to do and so on. And so that's what it feels like. Maybe maybe it's more sibling uh, for yeah. a lot of families, uh, not mine particularly, but um, in a way they feel that kind of um that that tension is just kind of natural as as both come of age and yeah. don't need to be listening uh don't need to be like subjective yeah like, i actually submissive yeah there it is uh <laughs> there it i is. actually <laughs> kind of thought of it from the other side i was thinking it a little bit more of kind of like a mentor student relationship when you reach that inevitable place where the student is no longer the student, right? I'm thinking of like uh, my, you know, professors in grad school who very abruptly one year we went from them being my teacher and me being their student to the next year, like, hey, let's get beers and dinner because we're both professors. And that transition Mm -hmm. is kind of weird and awkward. And I can't imagine doing it while you and your teacher went to grad school together. And that's kind of what's happening to Elaine and Nynaeve here, which I think adds a lot of tension to it. So I guess I'm just saying I find it believable, but the, any kind of example of this we can think of, it's, it's two people who are close in age, but had a very different power gap. And now that power gap is gone. Well, and and all of that agreed with Cosigned. Pretend I said it, don't give Tyler credit. Uh, and then also um, Egwene makes a reference to her trauma again, which I think continues to be something we risk forgetting is that- yeah. And she makes it, I think it's this chapter. She says something like clearly Elaine hadn't been tortured for a year or something like that. And, and, you know, to remember that it's not just, I've learned enough that I can challenge your knowledge. It's, it's because I like that analogy, but it's, it's also like, and I've seen the real world, right? If your professor asked you for, for going out for a beer and you're like, no, let's do cocaine. I'm into hard drugs now (laughs) (laughs) because I've seen the real world. Uh, that would be the analogy to me, right? Because she's seen a side that Nynaeve and Elaine has not. That's not what you do with your former professors on Thursdays. Uh, we need to talk about our usual plans, apparently. <laughs> uh, I do actually want to just highlight one more thing that's kind of embedded in this Egwene-Nynaeve uh, debate, um, which is the fact that we get episode one of what will become an ongoing conflict, wool dresses or silk dresses. Right now, Nynaeve is up one nothing, but get ready for the clothing conflicts to span the next 13 books of this series. Uh, I'll keep the scoreboard going. Don't worry about it. I don't expect you to have anything to say about wool versus silk. So why don't we drop jump towards uh, the dream section of the chapter, right? There are 8 million visions in these dreams. Which ones stood out to you? Which ones were exciting? I don't want to highlight my favorites because my favorites will be the ones that have the most exciting conclusions. Uh, Really, the only one that stood out was um, Perrin um, and we got the return of the Falcon, but the Falcon fighting the Hawk was interesting to me. And we've had no tell of a Hawk, like a literal Hawk at all, but correct. Hawking. Right. We have Arthur came to mind. Um, uh, And so um, I assume this is he is being now 
courting sounds weird, but like it seems like he's on a uh, he just had a meet cute. Right. Yeah. And uh, is moving into a relationship with uh, the Falcon. Um, so who is the hawk and how will that complicate this was where my mind got stuck in that section. A hundred percent. I think the only thing that I would note is that we have now gotten two visions with Perrin and a falcon and a hawk, and they were slightly different, right? Egwene's vision is a falcon and a hawk fighting each other. Min's vision was a hawk on one shoulder, a falcon on the other, and the hawk was trying to affix a leash to Perrin. And so that kind of combination, especially if we're thinking like leash and, as you said, Archer Hawkwing, that immediately puts me in the Sean Shanhead space, right? I don't know if that's exactly what's going on with the visions, but connecting dots, that is is one possible place to go here. The only other one that jumped out to me in this list of visions is I think this is the first time we've heard Matt and fireworks put together, which is just an interesting combination in the midst of what feels like a lot more kind of serious metaphor work going on elsewhere in this section. Uh, and his dice get a prominent mention, but that was not surprising. It's like, yeah, yeah that's what his astrological sign now is the dice. So he's, yeah. he's <laughs> dice are ascendant and he's uh, moving into their influence. Yeah. I have no way to make that joke better than you did. I should have laughed. That was a solid astrology joke. Uh, <laughs> end of this chapter, then, is an excuse for the girls to get off the boat. That's all I have to say about that. Anything yeah, at the end of the chapter that worked for boat. you? No, I I did. It, it, I mean, I found myself questioning a little. Are we supposed to say this is a trap that has been constructed? Is it just mm -hmm. that the brigands took down this boat here and so now we didn't see it and we crashed. But um, especially since none of that is picked up in the next chapter, it really felt it was like, just get off the boat. Yeah. Like, move along, move along. Also a solid Star Wars joke. You are killing it with transitions that I'm not reacting to at all until five seconds later. <laughs> Excellent work. I have nothing else to say about this chapter. Like you said, I think it gets us to the right place. I think it moves that clock forward and mission accomplished. Let's do the fun stuff. I think the fun stuff is chapter 38, Maidens of the Sphere. Uh, so both Egwene and Elaine immediately embrace the source upon seeing these individuals who were originally hiding. They soon realize that they are facing female Aiel. Um, Nynaeve, it is notable, does not embrace the source, probably because she can't. She's not angry enough. Um Egwene at this point realizes that she recognizes the Aiel as being familiar and thinks that they look like Elaine's cousins. She also says she feels an odd kinship towards one of them, a woman named Avienda. She is a maiden of the spear, um, and she um, says that the girls do not have the faces of wise ones, but they seem to ha be uh, have the ability to channel. And so she asks whether or not they would be able to help her heal an ally who was recently wounded. Um, Nynaeve immediately jumps in and says yes I would be willing to help I will heal and it's at this point that a number of other Aiel who have been hiding very nearby immediately make themselves known um, we are introduced to a number of individuals most notably Avienda Bane and Chiad get call outs in terms of all of the details of where they are from and we learn a little bit about how the Aiel think of themselves in terms of having sets and in terms of having clans and we also get a few kind of hints at the way Aiel culture works um, 
Um, we get a question if Egwene and Elaine are such close friends, why are they not first sisters? And there's a bit of confusion initially first because first sisters normally means you're blood related, but it turns out in Aiel culture, you can basically adopt someone as a sister. It's also worth noting that we learn here that Maidens of the Spear do not give up uh, the idea of being with a man. They instead give up the ability to wed a man or to have children, but both, but I'm sorry, but neither being a maiden of the spear nor being first sisters with someone limit your ability to have a relationship. And in fact, it's noted that Bane and Chiad pretty much only have relationships if it can be the two of them and someone else. Um, Nynaeve then finally, uh, with the rest of them, arrive at the injured maiden. And while she is trying to get herself mad enough to to, uh, channel. We then get a bunch more uh, lore dump about the Aiel. Um, we learn that Maidens of the Spear uh, generally never stop being Maidens unless they are called to a place that is referred to as Roydeen. Um, we also learn that uh, in the Aiel waste, water is so rare that swimming is considered to be about the scariest thing that could possibly happen. Um, and we also learn that Aiel um, have rules about who they can honorably battle and that no Aiel would hurt a woman who who is not trying to harm them themselves. Um, finally, Nynaeve gets herself to be mad enough that she is able to channel and heal this other individual. We learn just a little bit more about the Aiel, specifically that they once served the Aes Sedai but failed them, and that may be the sin that sent them into the threefold land. And then the chapter abruptly ends. There's really no wrap-up here. We learn a lot of things about the Aiel. Nynaeve heals one of them. That's the chapter. This is one of those chapters, I think, where you can say nothing happened plot-wise, I was bored, or you can say, oh my god, there's so much juicy detail about a culture we haven't learned mm -hmm. anything else about, I'm excited. And I think where you fall probably depends on what type of reader you are, and as you mentioned right before we started, Greg, it also probably is determined by whether or not you're reading a half an hour before you have to review a podcast. <laughs> uh, so... How did this chapter land for you, given that I know you were kind of reading it at the last minute? Did some of that lore maybe feel like it slipped by or just wasn't quite as interesting? Uh, you know, if you'd asked me before your summary, I would have said, like, I barely caught any of it. But as you went through that, I'm like, yeah, I remember all this. Like, there was nothing you mentioned that I felt like I'd really missed. I guess um, it was a surprise. Um, I think think I said on the podcast, because where else would I have been talking about Wheel of Time uh, <laughs> last week um, or one of the recent times where we got a reminder of the Aiel, I was just like, yep, we're just supposed to remember that things are happening with them and moving on. Mm -hmm. So I think to me, that was definitely like it's book four, at least, if not further. And so I was kind of surprised that we got back to there so fast and yeah. that we also did get a major dump of all their information. Nothing in that description really surprised me. I mean, I think it is a smart way of saying they're very similar, but slightly different. You know, these mm -hmm. marriage customs, these kind of, um, you know, I was thinking of the Rohan shield maidens and things yeah. like that. Um, but um so some of some of this felt like familiar types of uh, mythology. I guess the one question I had, and maybe it's not even worth asking, but would we assume that this is the rest of the party of Aiel that one was captured in the village where mm, somebody I, else was? Matt I was? think. I think we are too far away for that to be likely. Unless, okay. unless Gaul was in the cage for weeks or maybe months. Uh, I think we are basically 
east side of the continent versus middle of the continent, probably at least several weeks travel between them. So it's possible, but I'm not sure the timeline quite lines up. This is probably a second group, which honestly is maybe the more intriguing answer, right? This isn't one group of Aiel across. It is seemingly multiple groups of Aiel, all potentially either looking for or doing the same thing. We know that Gaul in the previous couple chapters ago uh, was looking for signs of he who comes with the dawn, which was uh, the prophesied uh, kind of savior of the Aiel people. Right. And so that would make sense. Let's send out a few parties to go hunting for he who comes with the dawn. Um, and yeah, uh, so I liked it. Uh, I mean, again, you listed off all the facts that seemed the most interesting. Um, I was going to you know, I almost interrupted for a few frat boy like hoots and hollers at the the three sums. Uh, but yeah. um, I did think it was very funny when um, I I don't the way it played was like Elaine made eyes at Egwene like, hey, maybe this is our solution. Like we can yeah. both be with Rand. Like let's do this. And Egwene was like, no. I actually I'm thinking of uh, Poe Dameron uh, making eyes yeah. at Felicity from the television show Felicity. Like, hey, is should we make out? And her just being like, no, no, it's not no. happening. Uh, and it kind of had those vibes to it, um, which which is is funny because this love triangle or or who will end up with Rand has seemed to be referenced a lot, but not ever anything we really are meant to care about moving forward, so. Yeah, the, the interesting thing in this uh, to me is that we get this moment where Egwene thinks, Elaine is thinking about sharing Rand, and then Egwene's immediate response is to say, well, neither of us will get him. And that is interesting to me for two reasons. I think one, because uh, that kind of suggests that um, Egwene has given up on Rand in a way that I'm not sure I had really anticipated before, right? Egwene seems to think there is absolutely no chance that either me or Elaine is going to end up with Rand. Um, she seems final on that in a way she maybe didn't in the previous book. The other thing that I found interesting about that is Egwene has shut the door on herself with Rand, but it seems like she's also shut the door on Elaine with Rand. And based on Min's vision, that is premature, right? Min has said mm. that uh, Rand is in some way tied to herself and Elaine and one other person. And so we don't know who that third person is, but we know there is an ongoing link with Elaine and Rand. And so in the same chapter to have kind of the mature acknowledgement of, hey, this guy's not for me. And also, but he's not for my friend either. I don't need to be jealous. Like one of those things is about to get pulled out from under Egwene. It's you, Tyler. You're the third. <laughs> <laughs> Just what you wanted to, to always dream about, being with the Dragon Reborn. Uh, yes. And so I, I don't think I remembered that piece. So that's very helpful that you just reminded me of this. But I want to go back to what I said, which is I don't really care. <laughs> like, okay, yeah. maybe this is my like, hey, I missed the the previous romance. I'm just not into romance. But it just hasn't felt like a priority to me. And maybe to justify those uh, negative sentiments, I'll just say, if the character is on the verge of going mad in the last chapter, I'm not like, can't yeah. wait to see who he smooches, right? Like that person's going to be in danger. And um, and I don't think this is building to like a true love saves him. It was, it was beauty that stilled the beast or whatever. Um, yeah. I don't see that as being part of this narrative. So I don't find myself very much invested in in Rand's I, actually almost any 
part of Rand's personal life now as he evolves more into the Dragon Reborn. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was describing in the first book of this series, right? I don't care about Rand the farmer. I don't care about Rand the kid who is maybe in love with the princess if that could ever possibly happen, right? I care about the Dragon Reborn. I think that is the fascinating part of that character. And so now we're finally getting to the point where that is who he can be. Don't don't drag me back into this love triangle stuff. Like, get, get me to the yeah. exciting part. Um, that being said, if we have three potential love interests for Rand and we're saying we know two and we're not quite sure who the third is, uh, I want to change uh, gears a little bit. It's me. You're right. Uh I want to change gears <laughs> instead uh, to another uh, group of individuals who we had almost all of the names of. And I can now finish out this group. Tyler's four favorite characters who define this series for him. Mm. Heron, Egwene, Varen, and Avienda. No Ooh. other details so far, but boy, do I love me some Avienda. Hmm. Um, it, to that end, it did feel like when they're introducing all these characters, I'm like, oh, these ones are going to matter, aren't they? Like yeah. you kind of do that gloss over. You're kind of like, yep, Stone River, whatever. And then you're like, oh, wait, like we're getting a lot. So I better go back and reread that paragraph because I think these characters are, if not sticking around here in this plot line, they will yep. come back up uh, over and over again. And um, yeah, so I go back to, I was surprised. Like we are getting a lot of Aiel. I you know, hearing how awful it is where they live now, it's mm -hmm. like, well, I feel like already whatever resolution comes has to be a reunion of them into the fold of these people. Yeah. Um, my one other thought, I just want to say carefully because we shouldn't cross streams, but I will say I was thinking a lot about a particular part of one episode of the television show when these yeah. characters appear. And I think it's obvious what it is if, if you've seen the show, but I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't. And I was like, Oh, I can picture exactly what these people are like, and I can yeah. picture uh, their their intensity. So we'll say we'll leave it at that. But I I I was kind of glad to have those pieces to to stick together, even if that's yeah. only something somebody reading at this like in the last year can have done. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that the show has. Uh... I, I obviously don't picture things, but it has redefined the way that I think about the maidens of the spear and the way that they fight and the way that they look and all of those things. And great, right? That's what these shows should do. They don't need to perfectly adapt everything from the book, but they give us something to latch on to. Uh, that's enough talking about like love triangles and what is going on in Egwene's head. I got some lore to talk about. Let's talk about the lore. Um, a few things that really stood out to me as interesting here and potentially intriguing, things that maybe aren't like fully resolved in the exposition. Um, I thought it was interesting that the Aiel are immediately looking at the girls' faces to determine whether they are wise ones, as they refer to them. I thought that was interesting because we've had references early in the chapter, earlier in the book, to Varen hiding her face or people noticing an Aes Sedai's face. So something mm -hmm. is going on there. Um, I also noted um, that we get um, this kind of vague reference to a sin in the ancient past of the Aiel that drove them into the desert, and that feels like something that really really matters. Um, and then the other thing is uh, when uh, Bane and Shiad are talking about what it means to be a maiden of the spear, they say something like the only way someone can become or the only way someone can stop being a maiden of the spear is either by dying or by going to Ruidi. 
And when they say that, they then immediately follow up. But some people resist going to Ruidin as long as they can. And that immediately makes me go, okay, someone among them is doing that. Is it Bane? Is it Shiad? Is it Avienda? We've got kind of these dangling holes in the otherwise pretty detailed exposition. That's immediately what I jumped to. Did any of those three kind of hanging mysteries stand out to you? Or was there anything else that you were like, I really need to know where this is going? Uh, of those three, it was the deep time one, um, specifically some kind of sin. And it was a sin between them and the Aes Sedai, as I recall, yeah. unless mm -hmm. I made that up. Nope. So it was some previous allies, but then split apart. Um, the faces thing didn't really register to me, but I, I did, uh, just to pick up on a piece of that, I liked the idea of the wise one being what they call the Aes Sedai. Um, you know, Lord of the Rings, uh, it got confusing to me the first time I read it, but they have like Gandalf has lots of different names and the movie doesn't like say that's not true, but is a kind of version of that. Like have, have you tried Mithrandir? <laughs> have you tried to keep track of how many names Aragorn has? Oh my God. Before uh, yeah. he's a king and after <laughs> he's a king and when he's a ranger and dear Lord. Yeah. Yeah. So like that, seems to be what we're saying here right and yeah. and we we've gotten the sense of this before that the dragon reborn is he who rises with the sun i forget what you just you just said it comes, comes with, with the, the dawn. dawn but you were close i'll give you credit for that <laughs> um which made me want to say he should be coming from the east not the west but then i didn't know which direction the sun goes i assume the sun goes the same direction here but but who I, knows it, it uh, is earth so yes yeah <laughs> okay well, who knows? Maybe when the breaking of the world happened, they reversed the sun. Or yeah. maybe Superman spun the Earth the other way to turn back time. There we is. don't know all the, all the... Yeah. Maybe that's the sin, Tyler. Huh? Huh? Maybe that's the sin. <laughs> that is a great um, sin. So... <laughs> All, all of that is like, that's intriguing to me. And I think especially where my head is at in the mythology of this place is I want to figure out actually what you just said, how this is Earth and what the kind of deep time scenarios are. That's yeah. more interesting to me than some of the other things you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I think that all of those moments kind of pique my interest and get me excited, but absolutely nothing makes me smile in this chapter more than the description of just how afraid the Aiel are of swimming. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's just a fun detail. And the other version you, of that, that really Ty Tyler is speaking as the guy who on our yearly cabin trips goes nowhere near the pond or the lake. So I just want that on the record for why he might like this so much. <laughs> that is 100 percent accurate. I don't need any more water in my life. Uh, the other version of this that I thought worked really well is uh, Nynaeve is absolutely furious. Why did you move this woman? You might have made her bleed out. And the answer is she wanted to die near water. And that's just, that's beautiful for a desert culture. Definitely. Um, makes me think of the end of Black Panther, the first one too, right? Like, uh, yeah, it really is the beautiful sunset, right? Or, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, cool. Uh, and and I I did cast dispersions on this chapter. So as we get towards the end, or maybe you have 10 more things for all I know. No. I do just say, like, I do appreciate this kind of chapter, and I do think it makes the experience richer. Mm -hmm. um, I was listening to uh, the director, Christopher McQuarrie, director of Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, part one, uh, did 12 hours of back uh, round podcasting about the making of the film. And he said... 
his entire experience as a filmmaker is making exposition like palatable. Like yeah. that's the one thing he can't crack. And so I was like, this is another version of that. Like, it's mm -hmm. just hard to get a lot of exposition out and mm -hmm. to like have a cool new group enter in. It's like, great, but like, hold on. I got to really slow this down and go through this all. I think, I think that's tough. So yeah. um, I, I, I think it's done reasonably well for a fantasy book, but it's just always a hard part of fantasy. Absolutely. And I think if we're thinking about Robert Jordan books in particular, I feel like the first third of his books are like, let me just set the table. And then the middle third are things start to move a little bit, but we're just picking up momentum. I need to kind of place the pieces where they need to go. And then the fun stuff happens. And I think we can kind of feel here the the tug of that fun stuff. It's getting close enough. We kind of know the gravity is there. And that's almost what makes it more frustrating when we get an exposition chapter like this, right? I think this is a better chapter than chapter eight of this book i'm just picking an arbitrary number but like <laughs> i i think it feels worse because we know how close we are to getting to the really good exciting stuff um i just had one last note in this chapter which is i'm really proud of nynaeve for learning that if you need to be angry to channel you can make yourself angry like that is the kind of like outside of the box lateral thinking like don't learn the eyes to die way of channeling just learn how to get mad good for her strategy effective that's my secret tyler i'm always angry <laughs> <laughs> uh that's too yeah. good of a joke <laughs> uh, and I'm tapped I didn't have anything yeah. on this chapter so so I'm just uh, I'm following your lead here <laughs> yeah honestly Maidens of the Spear is a chapter that introduces a culture that I find really fascinating and to some degree introducing a culture can only make you so interested in a chapter even if it's useful and valuable and we know why it's worth it um Next week, we have to slow down in the sense that we only have two chapters, but I'm pretty sure we'll actually be reading more than we did this week because chapter That's 39, right. Threads in the Pattern, and chapter 40, A Hero in the Night, are real long chapters, but also, I will note, real good chapters. Greg, take us out of the episode. I could tell from those titles because what we do uh, as the episode begins and we start recording as we sit and we're like, oh, wait, we forgot to write down the chapter titles. And when we find goodies like that one, I'm like, oh, man, maybe I'll just skip this episode and go upstairs and read. But, you know, uh, hey, it wouldn't be us approaching the end of the book if we didn't know we are closing in on the marker. I would I would say maybe not this week, but next week we're hitting the marker where it's like, oh, I would be staying up the rest of the night to finish this. The the like last hundred pages cruise. We're just a little over 200 now. But, you know, in a in a big fantasy book, it's usually like the last 200 page cruise. So I would yeah. be there if I was allowed to be there. And it'll only take us eight weeks instead of one feverish night. <laughs> so uh we will start that journey through those eight weeks uh next time through the glass columns so ends another episode of through the glass columns we thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the wheel of time in our own sweet time this podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass, and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. 
If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.